Okay, if we could make our way back to our seats. And if you'll go ahead and grab your Bible and open it up to the Gospel of Luke, we are we are jumping back into our Luke study that we've been in for a while now, um, although we've been on hiatus from, and so we're jumping back into Luke um, in earnest, and we'll be we'll be in Luke chapter sixteen, and uh, Tim's going to come up and read verses nineteen through twenty one. All right, our scriptural reading is from the book of Luke, uh, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Sorry, Nick. My bad. Okay. I forgot to put my mic on before we started. So um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we give you thanks for all of your many blessings, God. We thank you for um, the mercies that you've already shown us um, in terms of, of health and illness. Um, God, as, as many of us have been sick over the last few weeks, um, God, you have, you have cared for us and watched over us. You have mitigated, um, the, the, uh, bigger and, and, and more costly repercussions of, of being sick. And, and Father, we know that that is not something you owe us, um, and not something that we should necessarily expect, God, but you have been gracious and merciful to us in those things. 
God, we pray for our community as, as we continue to just have a lot of people who are sick and under the weather as our, as our hospitals are, um, experiencing the, the strain, um, of, of those realities, God. And then, and then the normal, um, day-to-day life, God, of people who are, who are sick and, 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 um, going through other things that have nothing to do with the season and nothing to do with COVID, but who are, um, dealing with, um, the reality of the fact that we are finite. We are, um, creatures who are here for a while, uh, and, and then, um, pass away, God. And so we, um, we ask that you would impress those things upon our hearts. Your word tells us to number our days. And so um, we want to be cognizant of, of that, especially as we come to your word and we see this passage about um, our eternal destiny and, and the place of uh, where we will spend um, all of eternity. God, we we ask that you would um, make us sober minded about these things um, and that we would um, God take nothing for granted uh, when it comes to to all of the issues that we see here. Fathers, we open your word. Um, would you, would you open your word to us? Um, would you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, speak to us, shine a light on our hearts? Um, God, convict us, um, encourage us, um, embolden us, uh, shore up, um, our belief, uh, and our understanding of who you are, uh, and, and the world you've created. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, um, man, uh, we're looking at another pretty heavy, uh, serious topic, uh, this week. And that is, um, a passage that pretty explicitly is dealing with the issue or the, 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 the doctrine of hell. Okay. And so you say, man, Ash, we, we've done divorce. We've done abortion. Like it has been a rough, um, a very heavy couple of weeks. And the reality is, is, is at least two of those, divorce and abortion, uh, divorce and, and hell. Um, are functions of the text, right? We are just going through the text. We're not, we're not picking things out of, uh, stuff just to talk about controversial things. Um, and then obviously with the abortion sermon, it had to do with the, the time of year that we're in and stuff, but, um, we have to talk about these things, right? They are issues that we have to address, um, both because they are apparent in the text and both because also because they are culturally necessary, right? We need to know these things and believe these things because we have a culture that doesn't particularly want to believe in the reality of judgment, the reality of hell, the reality that there are, are consequences for the way we live our lives, um, that, um, these things have eternal consequences. Okay. And, and that's one thing I want to start on just sort of as a precursor, as we talk about this passage, it's, it's a insight that, that Tim Keller is, is the one I heard it from, though I'm sure, um, lots of people have made this insight before. And he's talking about that reticence of the culture to talk about or even believe in the reality of hell and eternal judgment. And, and Tim Keller points out something uh, that's interesting. He says, you know, that reticence is largely a function of our own cultural biases. Uh, he points out the fact that, that the, the individualism of, of Western post-enlightenment life and worldview, right, it affects the way we think about all of this stuff, okay? Because the reality is, is this. In general, ancient cultures, and honestly, most traditional cultures today are relatively conservative 
when they think about these kind of issues about um, our eternal destiny. They believe in, in those cultures, they believe in a world that is ordered, right? It is static. There is a reality to the way the world works. And they understand that you need to get your life in line with that reality. And that if you do not, that there are going to be eternal consequences, okay? Um, That is the normal view of most people throughout all of history in every culture. But now we come to our own modern time and we see the world as much more flexible, much more malleable, that we should be in control of it, that it's something that we should be able to manipulate, Um, And we are bothered by the idea, it offends us, or it is even inconceivable sometimes, that there would be something out there that would, one, tell us what we're supposed to do, and two, make there be consequences if we don't do that thing. All right? And so, again, what's interesting is that... um, That is a cultural issue for us. It is not necessarily a human issue. What's really cool is that, or interesting, is that most of those cultures see the problem, the thing that offends them is the exact opposite. They do not have a problem with judgment and eternal destinies. They have a problem with the ideas of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy. Those are the things that run countercultural to those systems of thought. And so on one side, it makes sense because you'd expect Christianity if mankind are sinners and Christianity is the truth, then you would expect Christianity to rub everybody wrong in some way, right? It is going to come and speak truth into a world where everybody believes wrong on something. Um, but the reality is, is again, that, that we have to talk about these things. Hell is an inescapable reality that we find in the scriptures. And here in Luke, Jesus tells us this interesting parable uh, and it gives us, I think, a number of insights about the reality of hell, the nature of hell, the nature of those who end up in hell. And, and we could certainly do a study on this issue. We could go throughout the whole scripture and we could talk about all these different things and we could, we could zoom in and, and say a lot more, but we're going to try to stick to this one parable, um, and, and see a few things that we can, a few things that we can glean, um, from it. Okay. If there are a couple of characteristics about hell and, and those who are there. And the first one is this. I'll be honest. I'm going to go ahead and say up front, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis a bunch because C.S. Lewis has just got a bunch of insightful nuggets about, about the nature of these things. Um, the first thing that I want, I think we see in this passage is this. Hell is about identity. Hell is about identity. Okay, so verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Just real quick, about last Sunday, I realized that I had spent most of the day Saturday chainsawing poison ivy. And I, and it was, it's all over. I got it all over my hands, all over my neck. I didn't realize I'd got into it. So then I got home and I didn't shower and I didn't wash it. So I was just, you know, changing, moving and scratching and everything. It's I got it all over the place. Okay. But I wondered, I was like, God, did you give me poison ivy so that I would experience the life of this man here whose body was covered in sores? Um, I didn't have dogs licking me all this week, but like, man, I, it was, there were some points where I just, I thought, man, I'm, I'm so it's painful and itching. And I just, I would like this to be over, um, or whatever. And so it was, it was a weird week. Um, you get over flu and then to have a week of, of, 
covered in poison ivy. Anyway, that's probably more information than you need. Um, verse 21, it says, this man who's covered in sores, who sat at the gate, that gate, he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades was being tormented. So here's the deal. We're going to zoom in on one idea because there's this one interesting detail that we find in that section. Okay. Um, small enough that you might overlook it and you certainly need to have a larger picture of the gospels to catch it. But it is this reality in the 39 parables that are told by Jesus in the synoptic gospels. And it's, it might be a little less or more than that. It depends on some of them are pretty close to each other. It, it depends on if you count them as, as different ones. But in the 39 different parables that are told in the gospels, none of them name a single character except this one. This is the only parable in all the scriptures where a character in it has a proper name. Okay. And in this, one of the characters, the poor man is named Lazarus. Okay. So Lazarus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer. So you may recognize that name from the Old Testament. There's actually several characters in, in the Bible named Eliezer. The most famous most notable one is the son of Aaron, who became the second high priest of, of the nation of Israel after Aaron's death. Okay. Um, he is the, he is the person who is, we most think about when we think about the name Eliezer. But then obviously for us, the name Lazarus doesn't make us think of the Old Testament Eliezer. It makes us think of the New Testament character, um, who was a friend of Jesus. Um, who Jesus raised from the dead, one of the, one of the few people, or maybe the tons of people, depending on how you count them. Um, uh, the number of people who were, who were raised from the dead. Okay. That's a, that's a callback joke. Sorry if you weren't here for that one. Um, but the character of Lazarus, right, was somebody who was known personally by Jesus. You remember when, when Jesus found out he was, had passed away, that, that Jesus wept, um, that he was obviously very close. This is the brother of Mary and Martha. He was close to his family. This is somebody who was known personally by Jesus. And again, that name, Eliezer or Lazarus, means God has helped. God has helped. All right. Now, here's what I think is the case. And, and, and I don't think I'm, I'm unjustly drawing too much attention to this. If this is the only place in the, in the parables that we see a character named with a proper name, I don't think it's wrong to draw attention to that fact and to say, it's weird. Why would Jesus like all of a sudden he never does this, but he gives this guy a name. Um, but then moreover, by the naming of that guy, it draws attention to the other character in the passage too, who is not named draws attention to his identity as well. And that other man in the passage is known as what? He's, he only has a, a descriptor. He's called the rich man, right? The rich man. If the first man, Lazarus, is identified as the man who God knows by name, the man who God has helped, if we're thinking ahead, now remember the, the event where in the New Testament where Lazarus is raised from the dead has not occurred yet to our knowledge, Okay. Um, but if that is the case, um, then they don't know that Lazarus is going to be somebody who is raised from the dead. But for us reading after the fact, when we see Lazarus, we think, 
This is somebody who God knew. This is somebody who God raised from the dead. This person is alive because of Jesus. All those kind of pictures and images come to our head. If that is his identity, then what's this second guy's identity? Well, it is based around his, his richness, his wealth. In fact, that's how he's described. What does he do? He is a person who dresses extravagantly. He is a person who feasts sumptuously. When in, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a comment and he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food? Is the body not more than clothing? Well, this guy would say, no, right? It isn't. That's what life's about. Life is about having nice things and eating good food and being a person who is, who is living extravagantly and comfortably and, and, and all these things like that. He has defined his life around his stuff. All right. Now, uh, there's a, there's a Danish Christian philosopher named Kierkegaard, right? Probably many of you from, from school and stuff are, are familiar with his name, whether or not you know anything about it. But Kierkegaard had a comment that he made in one of his books where he said this. He was talking about the nature of sin and he said, well, what is sin? How do we define sin? Because most people typically define sin as the breaking of God's law. If you break God's law, that's what a sin is. But, but Kierkegaard says, but it's more than that. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. Sin is also building your identity on anything that isn't God. Okay? So it's not just breaking God's law, but it's building your identity on anything that is other than God. It's when you make something ultimate, even a good thing, you take that thing, you make it an idol in your life, you make it your identity, And all of a sudden it becomes something negative. When, when you make your justification, right, the thing that makes you right or happy or good or whatever, when you make your justification something other than God, what you find over and over again is that it ends up destroying you. Doesn't matter how good it is. Doesn't matter how beneficial you thought it was going to be. When you define your life on something other than God in the long run, it ends up destroying you. And that obviously could be anything. It could be power. It could be fame. It could be sexual conquest. It could be success. It could be comfort. This time it's money. But it could be anything. And here's the deal. When we said hell is about identity, hell is the eternal dwelling place of those who did not want to be identified by God. Hell is the eternal resting place of those who placed their identity in something other than God. Notice what it says in verse 23. It says, and in Hades being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Lazarus' side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish and flames. Okay, we'll talk about that verse again in just a second. But verse 25 is the key. It says, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner received bad. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish, okay? So don't mistake what's going on there. At first, it almost sounds like he's trying to tell us something like karma, okay? It's kind of like, look, you chose your good things and now you get bad things and he got bad things. And now he gets good things and it's this evening out pain. I mean, we're not talking about some concept like that. Essentially, what he's getting at is this, is Abraham is saying, hey, dude, you got what you asked for. 
Okay, you decided that while you were on earth, the most important thing was to seek after wealth, seek after success, seek after power, seek after comfort, seek whatever. Okay, and guess what? You decided to define your life on those things and you got it. It worked. You had those things. Okay, and now you're in a place resigned for those who built their lives on something other than God. And so you got exactly what you wanted. This is what you chose, and the consequences of your life has, have come out this way. All right? You made your choice, and here you are, okay? Again, C.S. Lewis has got this cool quote um, where he says this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those people who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those who say, whom God said of God, I'm sorry. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock. It is open to them. Okay. That's the reality. Okay. Now we are not saying that is all there is to hell, right? Because I, there's no way that we can talk about hell without bringing in ideas of judgment. Okay. But it, but that doesn't mean that it, this is not the reality. Hell is also about the consequences of the identity that you have chosen, the expected outcome of what you based your life on. Okay, and so again, there's this sort of thing where we talk about, man, I can't believe that God would send somebody to hell. And, and there is a reality, and, I, and again, it's not the whole reality, but there's a reality that because God doesn't send anybody to hell, that you choose hell, that you decide where you want to go by the life that you have chosen. And if you want to make your identity based on Jesus Christ, then there's a place for you after life, in, in the afterlife. And if you want to base it on anything else, there's a place for you also. Okay, and so hell is about identity, but it's but there's more that we see in this passage. Hell is also about separation. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So, again, Lewis tells uh, he has a book called The Great Divorce. Some of y'all possibly have read The Great Divorce. And so it's, it's sort of a, again, sort of like the screw tape letters. It's, it's sort of a, a, uh, fantastical kind of fictional, uh, idea. But the premise is, is that a group of people who are in hell get to take a bus ride to heaven and go check out heaven for a day. Um, and they can stay there. They can decide not to get back on the bus if they want to. Um, they can stay in heaven if they want to. That's the premise of the book. But what happens is you, as you watch the interactions of each individual who gets off the bus, as they talk to people in heaven, as people in heaven talk to them, one by one, they realize that they don't really have any interest in, in being in heaven, that they would prefer to go back to hell where they can nurse their grudges, where they can continue in their own self-righteous justifications. But they realize that, that hell, I mean, that heaven is probably not a place that they would enjoy or want to be in. Now, one of the keys to that book, The Great Divorce, is that it's like the very last line. It says, and then I woke up and re re realized that everything I had thought was a dream, okay? And the reality is, is that's the case because what we see in this passage is 
there is no, there's no bus ride from heaven to hell. Okay. Um, there is a chasm that is fixed between these two places. That chasm is impassable. You don't go to one place and then get to go to the other at some point. You don't go to this one and get to go back to the other place. There's, that doesn't happen. And that chasm, I think, at least symbolically, kind of represents at least two things, right? One is that hell is final, okay? Um, hell is the last stop. There's not a point where you get to hell and then you turn around and, and figure something out and get to go back at some point. Um, it's not a story like Dante's Inferno in which he can, you know, descend into hell and then climb back out and go through purgatory and get to heaven. Like, we don't get to do that. There have been a lot of popular books actually over the last few years that have um, suggested other conceptions of, of the reality of hell. So one that that hell is a temporary state. Um, uh, what's the guy's name? Rob Bell. So a couple of years ago, Rob Bell had a book out, right? And it was this idea that um, if if there is a hell, um, hell is a temporary place. It is a place where God um, allows you to maybe suffer for a while, but that is only so that He can pour the grace on later at the end, and that eventually there will be no hell and everybody will be saved. Um, in, at the end of time or whatever. Um, there's another conception of hell called annihilationism, which is that hell is, is while it may be a place of torment um, and judgment, that it's, it's not an eternal place, um, that eventually there will come a time in which God annihilates the souls that are in hell, which means they cease to exist. They cease to suffer, right? So they won't go through torment for eternity. But, but they just will cease to exist. And that in our heads is better. The idea is better than, than suffering for eternity, right? Um, but the, but the reality in both of those things is that hell is temporary. Um, it almost takes on the character the way purgatory does in, in the, the Catholic faith. It's somewhere you, you go and you pay your dues and you, and you, um, you accrue, you pay for the things that you did or something like that. But eventually you're going to be let out of it in some way. Um, that's a nice idea. Uh, it's not one that I think is backed up in scripture. It's not something that I think we see in the scriptures. Um, there is a chasm that is fixed between heaven and hell. And people in one place don't go to the other. That's not how it works. Okay. That chasm, I think, also represents something else. And it represents the separation that comes between us and God in hell. But here's something interesting. It is not separation between God per se, but from God's grace. So if you think about it, one of the characteristics that, and, 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 and somebody might disagree and we could quibble on the specifics of this, but, but one of the characteristics of God is his omnipresence. God is everywhere. We talk about that when we, when we talk about the, the incommunicable attributes of God, right? God is all knowing. God is all powerful. And God is everywhere. He's all present, okay? God is everywhere. What I understand that to mean is that God is also in hell, okay? But the, the distinction is this. God is not in hell where you get to experience, you are separated from something about God. And in hell, you are separated from God's grace is what you're separated from. You're separated from the good and the blessing of God. This man is in torment in hell because he is under judgment. That judgment's got to come from somewhere. It's not just like 
sitting out there nebulously, okay? He sits under God's judgment for the life that he has lived. And so, again, people will oftentimes say, oh, well, you know, hell is about being separated from God. And, again, I think some people would say, well, cool, man, that, that sounds like a good thing. I didn't want to have anything to do with God in this life. Uh, why would I want to spend eternity with God? And on one side, I, that makes sense. But what I would tell you is that you're not going to be separated from God, at least not the way you want to be. You're going to be separated from the good and grace of God and the mercy of God, but you're not going to be separated from the judgment of God. Again, C.S. Lewis has got a, a, a insightful way of saying it. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. And he says, those people who object to the doctrine of hell, they are, we, we would ask a question. What do you want God to do? It's this person who doesn't believe in hell. What do you, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs, to give them a fresh start, to smooth every difficulty and offer every miraculous help? Is that what you want God to do? Because we talk about people like they'll say, man, why can't God just get over it? Right? Why does he got to send anybody to hell? Why can't God just get over it? Why can't he just let it go? Um, if I have actually sinned against him, why can't he just, just like it says, why can't he wipe out my past sins? Why can't he do that at any cost? Why can't he give me a fresh start? Why can't he smooth every, every, every difficulty over? Give me every miraculous help to fix the situation. And C.S. Lewis goes on and says, but don't you see he's done that already? He's done that at the cost of Calvary. He's done that at the cost of his own son. You want to be forgiven, but you won't be forgiven. That's the problem. You want God to leave you alone? Well, in a sense, that's exactly what he's going to do. He is going to leave you alone from all the good and grace and blessing and mercy that you could have received. And yet instead, all you're going to know of God is his judgment. Yeah, man, that's a, that's a heavy thing, right? It's not something that we should make light of. It's not something that we should just sort of, it's not something that we should say with sort of a triumphant kind of my side wins and your side loses or something like that. I mean, those are, that's not the case. Um, and yet to not acknowledge these realities is to consign people to, um, to the terrors of hell in, in a pretty callous way on our part. So here's the last thing. Hell's about the identity you've chosen. It's about separation from God in a way. But then another thing is, is this is, is, and this kind of ties into both the others and the things we've already talked about. Hell is about arrogance. It is not about ignorance. Hell is about arrogance. It's not about ignorance. So again, you would think that being in hell would be an incredibly humbling thing, right? If you were sent to hell and in torment, the way this man seems to be, you would think that that would be a humbling experience, but not for this rich man. Again, notice the, the, the subtlety of this passage. The rich man also died and was buried, verse 23, and in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in these flames. So notice something. The rich man's reaction, his response to being in torment in hell is not repentance. It's not contrition. It is not to say, I'm so sorry for the way I lived my life. 
I'm so sorry that I, I, I focused on all the wrong things and lived the wrong way. And if I had only turned to God and placed my identity in God, then I could have been free of this. That's not his reaction at all. His reaction is, hey, man, get Lazarus down here to make me feel better. Somebody said, it's interesting, he's not really trying to get out of hell. He's really just trying to get other people in, in the passage, in a sense. He still sees Lazarus as a servant. He still sees Lazarus as somebody who is there to satisfy his needs and his comforts. Probably the way he treated, because again, we noticed that Lazarus was a man that sat at his gates, at this man's gates. Lazarus probably was one of his servants, but he got so sick and so nasty and so sore ridden that probably the man says, I don't really want you in my house anymore. You can go sit at the gates and beg for money. I'm not going to take care of you anymore. That's maybe adding a little to the passage, but it, but it's certainly plausible. And then he makes a request of Abraham that again, we see an arrogance in him, not a contrition or humility. Verse 27, he says, then if you're not going to do that, God, if you won't send, remember there's this chasm. So Abraham says, I can't send him down. There's no way to get from there to here. But then he says, okay, well, fine. At the very least, I beg you, Father, verse 27, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Okay? There's a subtle accusation there, a subtle implication there. What is it? Why don't you send somebody to warn them? My brothers haven't been given enough information to not end up in hell. And you know who else didn't get enough information? Me. I wouldn't be here, God, Abraham, whoever, if you had done a little better job of making me aware of what the consequences for all these things were, right? My brothers don't have, if you're not, if I'm stuck here now, then at least, the least you could do is go and make it clear to my brothers about what the consequences are. Or are they going to end up here too? Because I certainly didn't have that chance. So what does Abraham says? He says, what do you mean you didn't have enough information? What do you mean they don't have enough information? They have Moses. They have the prophets. That is, they have the law, the first five books of the Bible. They have the, 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 the rest of the Bible, the prophetic writings. What do you mean they don't have enough information? Your brothers have all the information they need in the scriptures. They have the word of God. And the reality is this, man. We say it all the time. It's a big book. It's got a lot of stuff in it. It's got a lot of stuff that details the character of God, the command of God, the expectations of God. It's a book that details the nature of your rebellion and your rejection of God. It tells you about how to repent and what that means and how to have faith and what that means. It tells you how to be reconciled to God. But again, what does the rich man say? That's not enough. That's not enough. They need something more than that, something bigger, something more dramatic, and then they'll be saved. I got an idea. Verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Then they'll get it. If somebody, like, man, if Lazarus, I mean, think about it, and and, and it's legit. If if Lazarus could raise from the dead, again, all those things should start clicking in her head because we go, I know a story about a guy named Lazarus who raises from the dead. 
Um, if Lazarus could raise from the dead, man, there would be something significant in that, right? If I saw a dead guy raised from to life and he came in and said, hey, I got some things to tell you, I would listen. At least I think I would. But Abraham tells us, you're actually wrong. It wouldn't make a difference. Because here's the deal. It's not about proof. You don't need any more proof. You've got all the evidence that you need. Something else is the matter with you. Your ignorance is not the issue. Verse 31, he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, again, for us, we realize that someone has returned from the dead, right? That passage takes on so much more meaning. Um, and we recognize that, yes, rising from the dead would give credence and truth to this word and to this warning. That the resurrection of Jesus should be all the evidence that anybody should ever need. And we've talked over and over again over the years, and you probably have in other churches about, you know, when you start looking at the resurrection, man, the resurrection is compelling, okay? The data that is there, even to the lost person, to the lawyer, to the journalist, to the historian, there is something compelling there because something happened. And so the resurrection ought to be all the evidence we need of these things. And yet the reality is for millions and millions of people in the world, it isn't. The resurrection is not enough evidence. A man coming to life from the dead isn't enough to prove the reality of God. Why? Because it's not about ignorance. It's about arrogance. It is about rejection of God. It is about rebellion against God and the judgment that that incurs. Again, man, Lewis is on point on this issue. And he says this, he says, at the end of the day, the choice of every lost soul can be expressed in these words, words that we actually find in Milton's Paradise Lost. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Now, this is the key, man. There is always something they ex- insist on keeping, even at the price of their own misery. There is always something that they pr- prefer to joy, that is to reality. And then he says, we see it e- easily enough in a spoiled child who would sooner miss its play and supper than to just say, I'm sorry. And be friends. Right? Have you ever seen a toddler do that? Have you ever seen a toddler defiantly say, I will not say I'm sorry. I will not repent, recant, reconcile. I don't care what it means. If it costs me everything, if it costs me fun, toys, dinner, play day tomorrow, I will fight it with my being. Okay, and I don't know if you've seen that in a toddler before, but I have. And you can ask my dad sitting back there. He's seen it in a toddler, too, because it was me. Okay, Um, and the reality is, man, we have to look at a toddler. Okay, man, look at the way you treat your spouse. This is the reality between me and Christy, man. Christy, our whole relationship. 
from the time that we were dating has always been way better about A, forgiving, and B, asking for forgiveness. Always. Comes easily. Maybe it doesn't, but it seems like it comes easily. She just says, I'm sorry. Or she just says, I forgive you and moves on way better than me. You know why? Because I don't do that. I don't apologize, right? I'm in it to win it, okay? I'm going to, if we're having an argument or something, then then that's what's the main thing in my heart, okay? You don't have to look to a toddler to see defiant rebellion. You usually have to look at your own life and your own heart. To forgive, to be forgiven, man, the reality is, is some people aren't interested in those things, even if they say they are. There's something in the human heart that is defiant or can be defiant to the end. I will not follow. I will not submit. I will not apologize. I will exercise my own autonomy. I will define my own existence. I will base my identity on what I want to do, and I will live as I see fit, even if it costs me eternity. That's the reality. Again, man, it's a hard thing to, to, to see. And it's a hard thing to look at somebody and say, this is the attitude of your heart. Because you know what? They're going to probably go, no, it's not. Of course they're just going to say that. Because they're going to reject the rejection. They're going to rebel against the idea that they are rebels. But that's the reality that we see. And yet at the end of this passage, it's drawing us back to the only solution. The illusion there at the end of saying, even if someone were to raise from the dead, it's drawing us back to Jesus and saying, Jesus is the answer to all of these things. He is the evidence if you needed evidence. He is the hope if you needed hope. He is the one thing to build your identity on. Again, we don't see it fully yet because, again, this is mid-gospel, right? So one thing that we don't see in this passage, we see a very clear picture of somebody who has based their identity on something other than God, but we don't see as clear a picture as somebody who has based their identity on God, right? Lazarus seems a little bit nebulous. I think he's symbolically, because of his name and, and things like that, someone who is based it. But yet the end of the passage is still pointing us to that, of saying the one who is raised from the dead is who you should base your identity on. The one who is raised from the dead should be the evidence and proof and and hope and forgiveness that any of us need to be reconciled to God, to base our identity to not suffer the separation that we will, that would be, um, that we would find in hell and, um, to live not in arrogance and rebellion, but in confession and in humility before our God and receive the blessing that he has offered to us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I know that's kind of an abrupt way to, to end. Um, but I don't know how much application, you know, kind of thing. It's not one of those passages where you're like, see, don't go to hell, people. Uh, you know, don't do that. It's, that's what we should get out of this. You, you want to not go to hell? Turn to Jesus, okay? Maybe that's maybe that's what we should take from it, okay, um, is that God has made a way. Um, he has shown you the picture of a life, uh, what, what a life looks like that ends up in heaven. Um, it is one that is based around the risen one, the one whom God has helped, the one whom God has raised to life. That's what it looks like to go to heaven. And for the person who spends eternity in hell, it is to live in defiant arrogance. It is to base your life on something other than God. And it is to then suffer the consequences of that of eternal separation. So let's go to the Lord in, uh, in prayer. Let's think on these things, meditate on these things.
um, ask God to use them in our hearts and minds. Father God, your graciousness and your kindness, your forbearance is, is overwhelming to us. God, if there are those who would look to you as, as an unkind, as a judgmental, um, God, they see you wrongly. Um, if they look to you as an angry father who cannot be pleased and is, who is eager, um, to, to punish and eager to judge and eager to send people to eternal judgment, God, they see you wrongly. Um, that is not your character, God. That is closer to our character. Maybe the things that we hate in ourselves are the things that we assign um, to you and our self-righteousness. But God, you have made every opportunity. God, you have done all that is necessary um, to allow us to be reconciled to you. God, you have been open in your grace towards us. God, you have provided the means by which um, we could be saved in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. God, it is your spirit that is calling and, and your people who are, who are putting forth the gospel call into the world. God, it's the spirit that is quickening and stirring up people's hearts um, that causes them to repent and to believe. God, all of the grace and mercy that we see, all of the goodness, um, we can ultimately ascribe to you. The reality is, is that all of the negativity, all of the, um, all of the unbelief, uh, all of the, um, arrogance and self-righteousness we can ascribe to ourselves. Father, you've been nothing but gracious. And so we pray, um, God, that, uh, for all of us, that our lives would be marked by repentance that it would, they would be marked by submission, that, that those around us, that those who are unbelievers in our midst, those that we minister to, those that we are actively sharing the gospel with, um, friends and family members who we are talking to and we are worried for because we know that currently uh, they are not followers of your son, that they are not found in Jesus Christ. Um, God, that we would continue to kindly but faithfully God, show them that the beginning is repentance, that the beginning is to turn from our own righteousness and turn to your grace and your righteousness for salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to, to God, handle these things well. There's so much opportunity to, to be unkind, to be triumphant, to be uh, judgmental um, when it comes to these topics. God, let us uh, talk about them with uh, soberness um, uh, and yet um, in hope uh, that people will hear um, the gospel and be saved. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
I think I say it every time we sing that song. That's one of my favorite songs that we do. Um, and, you know, here's part of the reason why I love it, because it's so old-timey, okay? The sentiments in that song are not the kind of thing you hear people <laughs> sing and say today, right? You have a song that is that is radically, every line focused on saying, you are a sinner without anything good in you. And Jesus is so kind and merciful to you and waiting to save you and providing every opportunity and every tool and everything that you would need for that salvation, right? Just do it, <laughs> right? Just turn to him. And again, I, that's not the, I don't think that's a sentiment that we hear in, in the music that's written today. Um, it's a great song about repentance. So, um, and a great song to, to finish this passage. So, amen. Um, if you, let me make you aware of something real quick. Um, uh, if you, if you were not aware, um, this is, is Dalton and Victoria's last night, um, with us. Um, he has taken a job in Indiana. And so that is where her, your family is from, right? So they're going to be moving back up there, um, to start a job there. And so we have loved having you guys and, and knew that you were hoping to, to end up in Maryville and man, the housing market and the economy and all of the things just didn't make that work out. But God has put you in a situation where now you've got this new path and a new thing going on. And so we're excited for you guys. We'll miss you, obviously, but especially since Dalton has family down here, um, we can, we can hope that we'll get to see you some and you'll come down to visit and stuff like that. So anyway, as you, as you leave tonight, maybe you go over and just kind of, um, say a word and that you'll be thinking about them and praying for them and, and, and that they would, um, uh, that God would put them, you know, it's funny. I think it's very convenient, uh, that in our covenant reading tonight, um, we happen to be in the third part of our church covenant and there's a closing section that if you've been at the business meetings, you re- realize was we, we had a little bit of talk over or whatever, but it is this line in the covenant. Remember the covenant is what we promise to do. We say as, as, as believers, as members of this church, this is what we're going to do. And the last line, the postamble or whatever you call it says, if any member of this congregation must by circumstance leave our fellowship and move from this place, they will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where they can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word, right? So that's what we pray for you guys, that you would get there and that um, in in the right amount of time, you would find the place where God wants you to be in community and to serve and to to give and to work and to, to share and to be a part of that community. And so, um, amen. Um, well, again, um, wish them well um, as as you leave tonight um, and hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.